Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn right into Ephesians chapter 4. One of the most popular musicals of all time. You could probably list the top 10 on your radar. I don't, probably can't even list 10, to be honest, on my radar. I have three sons. We don't watch too many musicals. But Sound of Music would probably make most of our lists. It came out in its film version in 1965, and the movie went crazy in the box office. was the top grossing movie of that year. And it, when it hit globally, every, every country that it hit, it, it made an impact. And the film, you'll remember, documents the journey of the Von Trapp family. If I were Matt or Daniel, I'd probably sing you a little line, but no one would want that. Uh, you remember, the hills are alive. I'll just say it. Uh, you can see the backdrop. You can see them singing together as a family. But you can kind of remember some of the pieces of the story. The threat of Nazi Germany was lingering there in the background. Tension also filled their home as the Von Trapp family struggled under the weight of the loss of their mother <clears throat> and their, their overbearing father. Do you remember the whistle he had to kind of the unique charge he had, the tune that he would play to call each child individually to come or to do something? And the piercing sound of that, of that whistle was overwhelmed by a different melody. When Julie Andrews, Maria, came into the house, the governess a melody, a new melody, a new rhythm entered their home, and it completely changed the dynamic of what was happening there. Even, even the hard-hearted dad, was his, his heart melted, and he, a new romance was born. Their home became a real refuge in a world at war. A new melody had changed everything. And the book of Ephesians in the Bible narrates a similar turn of events, but it's on a cosmic scale, and it's real it's not just in the family of the Von Trapps. We live in a battlefield, Ephesians will tell us, over and over again. And there are forces at work in this world that want to stop God's agenda. And they're unseen and seen. And they want to frustrate his agenda to bring reconciliation and restoration to this world. And Ephesians narrates how God sent Jesus into the world to change the atmosphere. He sent Jesus right into the middle of the battlefield so that he might start a new song among a new people. And that new people is his church, the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to look first at verse 8 in Ephesians chapter 4 because I don't want you to get confused when we get there. But this is the watershed moment in God's redemptive agenda that changed everything for the universe. Paul's quoting from Psalm 68, which is talking about Jesus and why he came and what accomplishment he had. So look in verse 8 with me. For it says, Psalm 68 says, when he ascended on high, Jesus ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. But what he, does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. So the Son of God came as a man dwelt among us, he entered the fray. The one who descended, that one, Jesus Christ, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. This is what God did. Jesus, the Son of God, came in human form, dwelt among us, and he overcame sin and death and triumphed over all of God's foes, enlisting them as captives in his agenda to bring restoration and reconciliation to the, to the globe. 
and he led them in triumphant procession. And as he's going up, it's like gifts were just falling out, dispensing the spoils of his triumph into this people that's called the church. And all this is so that, verse 10, did you catch the so that? So that Jesus might fill all things. Jesus exercises his authority to fill this empty, broken world. He started a new song, just like Julie Andrews started a new song in that home. And the first to hear the melody and join the song is his church. An old rhythm gives way to a new one. And first on your outline there in your, in your worship guide, we have a new rhythm to our walk. We have a new rhythm to our walk. Chapter 4 is all about our church keeping in step with God's work in the world, with this watershed moment that he brought about through Jesus' ascension. And I'm going to read all of chapter 4 so that you might see this new rhythm played out in a corporate body that Paul's addressing, the church at Ephesus. And he wants, God wants to address us this morning as the church at Brook Hills. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. <clears throat> now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, this is the watershed moment, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith. And in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then, we will no longer be children, little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former way of life, that's the old rhythm, 
Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds as the new rhythm, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil, devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Now there's one inherent weakness with starting the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. You see people walking to another rhythm, but you can't necessarily hear the music from chapter 4 alone. You might be some like, some like some unfortunate Koreans I heard about when I was doing some research on the details of Sound of Music for that opening illustration. When this one movie theater decided to make a little bit more money than the other movie theaters in their region. And so they, they needed to shorten the movie so they could get more showings in each day. And how did they shorten the movie? They took out the songs. <laughs> how do you take out the songs to the Sound of Music? Those poor souls, they left the theater. They had paid good money. But why did that family change? <laughs> what happened? They saw a family change, but they missed the music that changed them. And that's Ephesians chapter 4. If you just read it, you might miss the music. And so this new rhythm that gives way to our walk, that gives a step in our walk, is created by the new melody of the mystery. The new melody of the mystery. That's on your outline. And Paul even clues us in that we need to go back. If we're going to understand chapters 4 through 6, we've got to go back to chapters 1 through 3 because there's a hinge word in 4.1, therefore. So everything of 4 through 6, the rhythm, is built on the melody of chapters 1 through 3. And the melody of the mystery is that the two become one. Now the mystery is the term that Paul uses in Ephesians for God's gracious, redemptive agenda for the world. It's God's plan that he kept close to his heart for many, many ages, and now has unleashed on the world through Jesus in his, in his triumphant ascension over all the powers and authorities in the world. And at the core of this idea of the mystery is the, is the idea of restoration and reconciliation. God is mending a broken world so that a redeemed people could be the benefit could benefit from the love of his son and love his son in a perfect place forever. And the template or core of that mystery that Paul outlines all through the book of Ephesians could be summarized in kind of a reverse mathematical equation, the two becoming one. But Paul uses the metaphor of marriage. Marriage mirrors the mystery. Two individuals who come together and join as one flesh union before God is a living illustration of the whole drama of redemption. Marriage gives us the mental category so that we might understand what God's up to 
in the world. But the opposite of marriage, the dissolving of a union, could also help us understand the problem with the world. A divorce of cosmic proportions happened when sin entered the world. A threefold union of heaven and earth, of God and man, and man and man, dissolved when sin entered the world. Heaven separated from earth, God withdrew from man, and man separated from man. Our relationships were fragmented. And the whole world has become a theater for war. Hostility fills heaven and earth. And our lives reveal the wreckage. We are not right in a world gone wrong. Just look at the news. New Zealand, other factors all around the world show that this world is not right. But God sent Jesus right into the mess so he might right the ship. And his plan is underway to reconcile all things in Jesus so that a people loved by Jesus could enjoy that love forever and ever in a perfect place where heaven and youth are, and earth are reunited again. This plan is the new beat that overwhelms this people called the church. The, the melody of the mystery is two becoming one. The song has begun and the reconciliation plan is underway. Just look at Ephesians 1. It's going to be up on the screen. Heaven reunites with earth. That's on your outline. Heaven reunites with earth. Listen to this verse about the plan that God is bringing together. He's going to bring together everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Do you see the two realms? Things in heaven, things on earth brought together in Jesus. He's the glue that holds it all together. He's the culmination that's going to bring heaven to earth and right the ship forever. Then God reconciled with man in Jesus. And man is reconciled with man in Jesus. There on your outline. As the church in one body, we are brought together. There's peace that's entered the world. Look how Paul unpacks this vertical dimension and horizontal dimension to the plan of bringing two into one in Ephesians 2.15b. Look at this. So that he, that he is Jesus might create. Now that means this is something new in the human race. This hasn't been there before. So that Jesus might create in himself one new man from the two. Do you see the math? Do you see the marriage? Two into one. Two rivals are brought into one and there's peace resulting in peace. Look at the verse. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God, both uh, people groups that were at rivalry, Jews and Gentiles, bringing them both into reconciliation with God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Two relationships on two planes mended. The two become one. We were rebels toward God and God ended our hostility by his mercy and reconciled us with himself through the coming and triumphant procession of Jesus over all. God also did that same work in our hearts. We were rivals toward one another, fighting, bickering, complaining. And what did he do? He ended the rivalry and he brought peace between us. And the church is the earthly demonstration of the heavenly reality of reconciliation. The church even previews the coming attractions of when heaven meets earth in marital fullness and oneness. A new body, a new man has entered the human race where a new song is being played out. And the two have become one. That's the beat that transforms this people. Peace is coming and peace has come. A new melody can be heard in this church. You know, you know the, the hills are alive. 
Brook Hills is alive with the sound of music. There's a different melody at work here. The second truth in Ephesians 1 through 3 that we have to hear if our rhythm, if we're going to keep in step with what God's up to in the world, if we're going to have a new rhythm to our walk, walk is the new grammar of the gospel. Grace changes the way we talk because it changes the way we think. And the first change that happens is our verb comes last. That's on your outline there. Our verb comes last. Now remember, we're headed to chapter 4. We're going to get to our rhythm as a, as a church, but we got to hear the melody first. And grace is a part of that melody. Grace changes the way we think. It's like becoming fluent in another language. It alters the substructure of how you process the world. It's like learning Turkish. For me, it was really difficult. One of the reasons why, for English speakers, we put the verb up front. We play basketball, right? The verb is up front. In Turkish, basketball we play. But imagine 50 other words and you're waiting for that verb. It takes a lot of patience and it just rewires the, the way you think, reprograms the way you think. It messes with you. I, the best way I can explain it is imagine talking like Yoda for a day. Tired you will be, sleep you must. It's tiring. It messes with you, and grace messes with us because the default mode of the human heart is to think like English speakers where we put our verb up front. I obey and do good deeds so God will honor me and accept me in the last day. You see how our verb is central? God responds to us. That's the default mode of the human heart, especially when religion gets Involved, But grace operates in the other direction. God accepts me in Jesus, therefore I obey. God's verb comes first. You can see this play out even in the structure of Ephesians. There's only one command in chapters 1 through 3, and it's the command to remember. Remember who you were without Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 are all, this, all these commands start coming out. Because the grammar of gospel changes us. It changes the way we think. Grace functions like Turkish and waits on our verb. God acts, then we act. God starts the song, we join in. We're not the one that plays the first note. If you're banking on your goodness to get you right with the holy God, let us plead with you, friend. It's never going to be enough. And it changes. It, you can see it even play out in your relationships. If, if, if it depends on us, if our verb comes first... If our acceptance with God depends on us, we have to prove ourselves. Our innate hostility with one another remains. We remain rivals toward others. And a culture of comparison and critique results. My, my daughter, Emma, just joined the Chelsea Middle School track team. And, you know, they call this track team down when they're about to run their race. And, and they line up and the gun goes off and, and one group heads out. And then the other one is right behind them and they're ready. And the gun goes off, they head out. But... But before that group of people gets out there on the, on the track, they're sitting there, and it's just a huddle of nerves. They're looking around, who's going to eat my dust today, you know? They're looking around at each other, what if I let down my team? Maybe there's self-doubt that enters in, or they're like, man, she looks really fast. i gotta, I got to step up my game today. But it's just a huddle of nerves right there, suspicion, jealousy, envy, rivalry, results. That's the track meet. That becomes church life if our verb, if it all depends on us, if our verb comes first. But grace alters the community. 
Yesterday, my, my family, we ran uh, at Oak Mountain, we ran a color run, which if you don't know what that is, it's, it was a color run that Oak Mountain High put on, and they're throwing dried paint on you the whole time, so you end up with a mess. If St. Patrick's Day today, I have a green back because of this color run that we went on. It, it went down my shirt, thanks to Owen. Um, but uh, but the, the atmosphere was totally different. We were there celebrating. We were there for a different cause. It wasn't about us. And we were cheering each other on. This one lady fell right in front of us, and, and we make sure she's okay. We we make sure before we move on that she's okay. My son's back was hurting, so I'm not going to leave him behind. This is a race that we help each other finish because we're there to make a statement against cancer in the world. That's, that's what church life is. It's a color run. It's not a track meet because our verb comes last. Our whole corporate life is not dependent on us. It's dependent on God and His initiative toward us in grace. Now, the second grammatical shift that happens because of grace has less to do with verbs and more to do with pronouns. And this one's on your outline. We comes before me. Now, technically, I know that's a mixture of subject pronouns and object pronouns, but bear with me here. We're learning a new language. We comes before me. Now, look past the therefore in chapter 4. We finally arrived in chapter 4. He pleads with us as the prisoner in the Lord to urge us to le live worthy of the calling we have received. Jump down to verse 3. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What's walking worthy? It's keeping the peace. The war is over, people. Your rivalry is ended. You've got to keep in step. Your walk, your lifestyle has to be in rhythm with what God's doing in the world. If two are becoming one and we separate... What are we telling about the, the melody? We haven't called on yet. There's a rhythm to God's grace at work in the world. And guys, I am the worst to be talking about rhythm. I cannot clap and sing at the same time. So if you see me doing that one morning, it's a good morning. Um, but our church, Paul wants the church at Ephesus and God wants the church at Brook Hills to be in step with his activity in the world. To, to be speaking the grammar of grace to one another. And the rhythm that corresponds to the gospel is that we put we before me. And this finds expression in three ways in Ephesians 4. The first way is we stick together. We stick together. It's on your outline there. When I, when I was in 10th grade, I rear-ended a buddy of mine leaving high school so that all my friends uh, passed by. It was a pretty embarrassing day. He happened to be driving his brother's brand new convertible Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. It was a bad day for him and me. Um, I didn't think I hit it that hard, but he tapped the Suzuki Samurai in front of him. And the Suzuki Samurai, if you don't know what that is, it's like a glorified golf cart. Um, and the, the front bumper of the Suzuki Samurai came off. So his car actually didn't look that bad mine looked pretty bad and i thought man we'll probably get through this it won't be that big a deal but i didn't know what had happened internally in his car you see modern engineering of cars comes with this 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 idea or this structure called crumple zones old cars were made with rigid frames so that if you hit something you just inflict the blow but newer cars have this thing called crumple zones and it's intended to protect the passengers within the car and the car actually bends in on itself protecting the, the cage around the passengers so that the car absorbs some of the the force of the wreck 
so that the people inside are protected. Thankfully, my friend's car had that crumple zone, so you couldn't see it from the inside, but the whole car had crushed in on itself, and it absorbed the blow that I inflicted that day after high school and 10th grade. Now, this chapter has crumple zones on both sides for our unity. Grace creates zones around our relationships that protects and preserves our unity. The front side of absorbing conflict is just not letting it get unhealthy in the first place. Amen, married couples? (laughs) If that could be applied, wow, we'd have healthy marriages. Verse 2 shows us the heart attitudes that preserve peace among us and prevent us from going down the unhealthy path toward division. Look at verse 2, with all humility. What if you walked around every day, not with some humility, all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is the front side of conflict. Grace creates a certain degree of thick skinness. We don't easily blow up at one another because humility and eagerness for peace and forbearance neutralize the extreme emotions that escalate our conflicts. Paul then, at the end of the chapter, look at the end, turns to the backside of conflict. Verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Just as God forgave us, we are inclined to forgive one another. Grace creates a new rhythm. We comes before me. God's kindness, how kind he's been to us, chokes out malice in our hearts. If his goodness is running after us, we don't have to chase down our brothers and sisters with evil intent in our hearts. We are people who are inclined to take one for the team. We comes before me. Grace makes us absorb the blows that threaten our relationships. So we have soft hearts that forgive quickly and thick skin that don't get riled up quickly. Christian unity is so unique in the world. Now it has its own challenges. When diversity is part of the mix, it's, it's a mess at times. Other religions like Islam might appear unified. They wear the same clothes, they do the same movements, they say the same words in prayer, but that's not Christianity. Our unity isn't in outward conformity, but in an inward reality of grace that unites us, and it glues us together. And that's why Paul rehearses everything that unites us in verses 4 through 6. He reminds us why we're together, and he repeats the word one seven times. Seven times he comes back, one body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all and through all and in all. He hits one every time because who has acted to bring us as the church into being? Every single person of the Godhead has made us in all of our diversity one. We share the same realities, one hope, one calling, one body, one faith, one baptism. We come in through those waters into this church that we call family. And this rehearsal of our oneness kind of strikes a chord against a gravitational pull in our hearts away from one another when we're different from one another. But grace pulls us back and pulls us in a different direction toward one another because we share the same salvation. It's easy to create a superficial unity with people that's built on common interests. 
But what Paul is reminding us of, God has created a common unity among us, even in our diversity, because how he intervened in our lives. Now, the second way grace changes our corporate rhythms is found, number two on your outline there, we sit under the Bible together. We sit under the Bible together. And would you write this word beside that, gladly? We gladly sit under the Bible together. If Paul just explained all the ways God has acted in Christ to make us one and bring us together and all the commonalities and heritage we share in him, now he articulates the reason why we are all different. Verses 7 through 16 explains how Christ has designed each sing every single one of us who's a Christian in this world, in this room, and dwelt by the Spirit with a unique set of gifts that contribute to the building up of this church. We grow as each individual part properly functions. We mature as Christ fuels our growth through the gifts that he's given every one of us in the world. Now look at the repetition in this room. Sorry. Look at the repetition of the verb give in verse 7. You look there in verse 7. Now grace was given. That's two words that have that idea of give, giving in them. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, now look at the end of verse 8. He gave gifts to people. Jump down to verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. Three times he gave. Jesus is no king whose palace is immaculate while his people suffer in poverty. He gives to his people so they might flourish under his rule. The BBC reported this past week that North Koreans went to the poll to vote. The Kim family rules North Korea, but they still have elections for parliament. And I say elections in quotes because in vote in quotes because it's really not a true election. You, there's one name on the ballot, and you technically could wipe it out, the BBC reports. But the secret police would probably show up at your door soon after and declare you insane, and who knows what kind of fate you would be inviting upon yourself. Everyone must go to the polls, so there's high turnout. It actually becomes a way of tracking down those people that have fled the country. Everyone must celebrate afterwards and go to the streets so that they can put it on the news that everybody's happy in North Korea. For submission, for celebration. Now what makes this a picture in Ephesians 4 so different? We didn't get a vote on the king of the universe. God didn't ask our opinion when he appointed Jesus over all things to fill all things. Submission isn't optional. It's either now or later. But what makes it different is his heart. Look at the king's heart. Submission doesn't feel like sacrifice with a king so generous. He, the immediate moment of his victory, it's like gifts are just flowing from his throne. As he's on the way up, he's just showering his church with blessings. We don't have to be asked to go out into the streets and celebrate. We gladly be in the knee. We gladly go to the world because this king is so loving. Authority and love beautifully wed themselves in this union between Christ and his church because his heart is for us. He is the best thing that ever happened to the universe. And it would really be, really be insane not to worship him. Every Christian has a gift. Verse 7 states, we just read it. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure 
of Christ's grace, according to the measure of Christ's gift. But some are given particular gifts. In verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So some bring the word into the new territories for the gospel, like apostles stay for a little while, and then some stay for a long time, like pastors and teachers. And they, they give this prolonged exposure to the word of God. And Christ knows exactly what we need as the church. So he starts by giving these teaching gifts to these brothers and sisters. And he brings the gospel to a people. And then he, he fires all the, all the pieces of the body together so that they might build themselves up in love and every part might be equipped to be faithful with their role in the greater work of the body of which Jesus is the head. We love the Bible here. We're going to take notes. We're going to open this book in small groups. This is that's our, first, our first pursuit that Matt focused on. We are transformed by this word. We have realized as a people that it's so much better when he runs our life. Amen. It's so much better. That brings us to the third aspect of staying of this staying in rhythm with grace. We steward our gifts and our resources for the good of one another. We steward our gifts and our resources for the good of one another. We before me fleshes out in this way among us as a people. Notice the goal of all those equipping gifts in verse 12. The saints, that is, every Christian who's been dwelt by the Spirit, are equipped for the work of service, which is meant for the building up of the body until we all attain a unity of the faith, the knowledge of God's Son, and we become more and more Christ's visible fullness on earth. It's like we're turning up the volume of the melody of the mystery when we just fill ourselves, when every person is engaged in the work here in the proper way. So this is our pursuit as a church. We pursue ministry so we invest sacrificially we're all in all hands on deck no one on the bench the staff doesn't do the ministry here the pastors aren't called to ministry here all are called to ministry every Christian in this room is called to the work of ministry some equip but all engage verse 16 outlines that process from him from Jesus the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. The process of maturing, being built up, is dependent wholly on Christ. But it's also, he's made it dependent on every ligament functioning correctly. I didn't realize how important every single ligament was until I got 40 last year. <laughs> Your ligaments, they, they matter, right? Um, brothers and sisters a little older than 40 in the room uh, they matter every supporting ligament matters and he fires them through the equipping roles so that they might function together for the flourishing of his people the fruit of the all-in action of the church is stability and maturity stability and maturity we grow up together we mature together we're no longer little children no longer tossed here and there. There's an element of stability that we bring to the table as a corporate body. If we're shaken, it's because some of the ligaments aren't firing right. We have a corporate responsibility for our flourishing. And brothers and sisters, there are so many of you, I can see faces in this room that are so engaged 
that are firing ligaments in this body, causing the flourishing of this body. I think of guys like Wesley James who lead a small group, sharing the gospel, and putting on a parking vest on Sunday morning. I think of a lady like Courtney Talley who's on her way back from Central Asia right now and, and a person in preschool had to fill in for her gap this morning and a person at college is going to fill in for her because she's involved everywhere. I think of Brian who hands me a bulletin every Sunday morning with a smile on his face and radiates the joy of Christ. I think of the sound and camera crews, the worship band, they bless us. I think of Wayne Kendrick, I don't know how old Wayne is, I won't guess in front of you all, but... He's an older gentleman, one of our elders. I remember meeting him and passing in, in the bathroom this summer when we came. And he, he washed his hands and he took paper towels, he dried his hands, and then he took more paper towels and wiped all the water off the sink. And I thought, man, praise God. It's a brother who cares about others not getting wet when they lean up against the counter. Praise Jesus. I think of all the teachers investing in your kids and my kids right now in this church. I think of Gordon in Maryland who let Nia that we just commissioned stay in their house for free so that she could raise support and be on her way today. I think of Dave and Jackie Heckman who came in when Megan was discouraged and needed to close a gap in her, in her support and they came in and Christ used them to fill that gap. It is absolutely breathtaking to see Brook Hills in action and I could go one by one through every section and, and show how each of you is engaged in various ways to, to fill this body with Christ's fullness through the gifts he's giving you. And that's no small feat. What Paul quotes here tells us that those are the spoils of Christ's victory. Look at this quote from Jonathan Parnell. Psalm 68 pictures Jesus as a victorious king dispensing the spoils of his triumph. This procession was more than bright lights in a hallelujah chorus. This king is a conqueror. He has scars. And one fruit of those scars is your pastor's teaching gift. Or your small group's relational wisdom. Or Miss Betty's encouraging words. When we see the victory of Christ in the gifts of others, our eyes become more grateful than critical. We celebrate instead of nitpick. Jesus died for that gift. He died for your brother or sister to have that gift and for you to be built up by it. It's a big deal. And I would add, he ascended so it would be at work right here among this people. And bless you today. Let us be a thankful people. And let us also hear the heart of Christ. Every week we end with a great commission. Where we see that same sovereign reigning Christ commissioning us to go. But I also want you to see that same sovereign reigning Christ. What's on his heart when he's up there? <laughs> that we would grow. And at times in our body, I love that we have a mission DNA, and I'm the global mission guy, and I love it. I want to keep it. I want it to flourish. I want it to burn. I want it to take the world. But I also want to hear this grow. It's go and grow. There's not a, there's not a conflict in Jesus' heart between mission and maturity. He's flourishing. He's causing the church to flourish. Let us go and let us grow. Let us make disciples here among us. Let us make disciples there among the unreached. And let, us, let it be with equal further. Because it's equal in the heart of Christ. And there are various lists throughout the New Testament of spiritual gifts. And I've got to pick up the pace here. 
You can do 1 Corinthians 12 might be a place you could go this afternoon and read over those lists. Romans 12 is another place and pray how God wants to use you in this body in unique ways. But the consistent refrain with all the gifts is that they're done in God's strength, that they're done for another's good and with all out joyful effort. God's strength for another's good and all out joyful effort. Every ligament matters. You can take a survey, but I would just encourage you to do this. Just get busy serving and stay humble. And the Spirit's going to use you in unique ways to bless this body. There are easy on-roads to get engaged. You can talk to people out in the hallway today about getting involved in a small group, about leading a small group, about preschool ministry and and other ministries that are needed. There are short-term teams. There's Love Oliver and Rock the Block that's coming around the corner that you can engage in. There's even probably a ministry starting soon to help families with kids with special needs to reach out to them and address those needs and help comfort them in Christ and show them the gospel by those good deeds. So there's easy on-ramps, but I would say there's there's another easier way. Just start. (laughs) Don't wait for a role or a title. Tim Chester said that most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Look at how this ordinary nature of ministry fleshes out in the chapter. Just look at 428. Let the thief no longer steal. That shows you that there were former thieves at the church of Ephesus. Hey, we're a mess, right? And Jesus is transforming us. How does he transform thieves? Why should they work? Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Do you see the we before me mentality that's taking root there? Why should former thieves work with their own hands and not take from people? So that they can give to people. They should work for somewhere else. Do you see how countercultural this really is? Tomorrow morning you'll go to work. And you, what if you had a joyful attitude, not about payday for your family and for you, but for someone else? That's how countercultural this is. Grace makes payday a corporate relief we before me I remember a dear brother Dick was his name he loved the Lord loved our family Uh, he and his wife led a prayer team for us while we were overseas and I remember talking to him about retirement one time and he said you know Chip the one thing I'm sad about retirement about he said I can't give as much as I used to my income has decreased I was like man I'm taking notes that's a gray-haired man who knows that his whole life is about blessing others, not about blessing himself. Look at verse 25. This is an ordinary rhythm to our life. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. How ordinary is that? Just tell the truth. Put away lying. Because we come to for me. If you think lying is not affecting and frustrating our growth as a body, you're wrong. We are members of one another. If you're in the darkness in some area in your life, can I just plead with you for a moment to come out into the light this afternoon, make the call, have the hard convo, do it delicately, carefully. Don't cause more harm in how you communicate, but come into the light. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And 1 John 1 tells us that there's a depth to knowing how he does it in our fellowship with one another when we walk in the light together. So come into the light. We're going to hang on by God's grace. It might be hard, but by God's grace, we're going to hang on. 
I can remember this was the second sermon I ever preached, Ephesians chapter 4. And it was at an old church where they used to do the, the invitation at the end. And I would come down front and people would come pray with me. Or, or people would come pray down at the altar, we would call it. And um, some, some churches do that still. And I remember this one lady, I was so nervous. I was a young kid, college kid actually. This one lady got out of her seat, came up front. And I had this little lapel mic on. Well, I forgot to turn the lapel mic off. And the sound guy didn't know. So there she is confessing her struggles with the church. And, and everybody heard it. <laughs> and I just thought, man, I'm so sorry. Renee was her name. I'm so sorry I did that. Let me pray for you. So I prayed for her. Uh, but I think that probably would be a good dose for all of us just to come out into the light. <laughs> Let's let the lapel mic be on and... And not to share and vent, but just to share our struggles and, and be who we are and not put away lying. That's all. I'll, I'll stop meddling there. Look in verse 29. This is how ordinary this should be in our li the life of our body. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So why do we speak? Grace transforms our mouth into a channel of grace into others' lives. We do it appropriate to the need of the moment. You know what that requires? It requires us to be good listeners. So let's put away our phones and let's listen to people and let's enter into their needs so that we might give them a timely, wholesome word that gives them grace at the moment they need it. We before me. So Brook Hills, we pursue ministry. We invest sacrificially in, in orderly ways so that we cover the whole gamut of our body life, like preschool in those ways, but also in very ordinary ways in the daily rhythms of our life. Sweat, tears, laughter, sorrows, hard words, good words, open wallets, open homes, shaking hands, playing with kids, opening the door, sharing a burden, praying together, serving together. These are the tokens of Christ's victory. These are the trophies that showcase His glory. Grace makes our verb come last. Yes, church. But we still have a verb. All of us engage. We each have a role. Let us grow up into him who is the head. Paul Tripp said these words about the church, and I'll close. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love Him better, and learn to love others as He designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but is God's wonderful mess, the place where He radically transforms hearts and lives. We pursue ministry, so we invest sacrificially, church.